This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. My guest today on eConversations is one of America's best known and, and probably most distinguished uh, economists, uh, an economist who throughout his career has uh, defended the principles of, of economic freedom and limited government, both in his academic work and then also in his work as a, a nationally syndicated columnist and, and uh, frequent uh, contributor to uh, Fox News and, and uh, a former guest host of the, the Rush Limbaugh radio program. He holds the uh, John Olin, Chair of, of Economics at George Mason University. He's been a, a longtime uh, defender of, of uh, classical liberal ideas. And, and uh, again, just a, a, an important inspiration to myself when I was getting into the economics field, and I think to, to many uh, generations of, of students who have come since that. So, and with no further ado, I guess I should uh, welcome you to the show. Mm -hmm. this, uh, my guest today is Dr. Walter Williams from George Mason University. George, uh, Walter, Good, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, recently you wrote a, a column noting how we celebrate President's Day every February in the United States, but uh, and we honor George Washington, our, our first president. But another of the, the presidents that we should consider maybe honoring in uh, pre on President's Day was James Madison. Uh, yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, President Madison's uh, contributions. Well, first of all, I, I think that uh, I think that George Washington was the most decent American that we've ever had in our history. Uh, really, a great man. And, but uh, just as important as George Washington was James Madison, and James Madison is the acknowledged father of the United States uh, Constitution. And if you look at the, uh, uh, he was the instrumental person in the 1787 uh, uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. He kind of guided the forces. Uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, Hamilton, he wanted to have a president with uh, dictatorial powers. That, that is the power to uh, veto uh, legislatures. But uh, uh, Madison's vision was a very, very limited government because he wanted a republic. He wanted something that was that government to do some crucial things that government needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But he recognized as his colleague, uh, <clears throat> Uh, Thomas Paine, that government under the best of circumstances is a necessary evil, under the worst, uh, an intolerable evil. And so James Madison did things like most people, and that a lot of people don't know, he, uh, at, during the convention, uh, uh, one issue was brought up, and that was, well, should the, uh, should the federal government be able to stop a seceding state? That is, if a state wanted to secede, uh, from the uh, from the compact, should the federal government have the uh, power to stop it? James Madison said no. He said that the that the states are independent and uh, and the federal government is limited. And I think another thing he recognized, although he did not say it, is that um, and most Americans don't know it, is that in 1783 the uh, the Paris the Treaty of Paris ended the war between Great Britain and the colonies, and. And, and the, when the Treaty of Paris was signed, it's, it was it settled. It said that there are 13 separate nations. That is, each state was a sovereign nation, and they and they and these states they they guarded their rights jealously, and they were afraid to give them to the uh, federal government. And so the states came together as principles, 
and they created the federal government as their agent. Mm -hmm. And and the way the federal government acts today, you would think that is exactly the opposite. That the federal yes. government is the principal, and the states are the uh, are the uh, are the agents. But and and um, and a rather remarkable thing during uh, 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 Madison's career was that uh, he uh, <clears throat> he did, he said something that a politician would say today would be political suicide. That is, in 1794, Congress appropriated $15,000 to help some French refugees. James Madison stood on the floor of the House irate, and he said, and I'm virtually quoting him, he says, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to spend the money of their constituents for the purposes of benevolence. Now, if you look at the federal budget today, two-thirds or three-quarters of it is for the purposes of benevolence. And the sad part of it, of all this, the, the, what we've done to our country, what we've done to the visions of the founders, is that any politician who would live up to his oath of office to uphold and defend the United States Constitution, he would be run out of town on the rail by, the, by his constituents because there's been such a, department from, a departure from the ideas of personal liberty that, start, that uh, we had when we started out as a nation. But our, our, our founders certainly did lay down such a, a course for our, our, our nation, both through their actions at the Constitutional Convention, Madison's uh, writings on mm -hmm. the Federalist Papers, arguing as to why this uh, you know, yeah. Constitution should be adopted by the states, yeah. and then also uh, the, their actions, George Washington and, and the other founders who, who set an example, uh, yeah. who not only laid out the institutions and principles of freedom, but they actually lived up to those principles as, uh, as statesmen, right? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and, they, and, and again, to stress the point of the, <clears throat> that many Americans don't know, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the anti-federalists, they wanted a Bill of Rights added to the United mm -hmm. States Constitution. And they said, well, we're not going to ratify the Constitution unless there is a Bill of Rights. And, and Madison and Hamilton uh, were against a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. And, and Hamilton, in one of the Federalist Papers, he said, why should we tell the Federal, why should we say that Congress cannot interfere with people's freedom of speech when we have not authorized it to do so in the first place? Mm -hmm. And so he said, it is impossible to enumerate all the liberties that people had and and, it, um, and those that were not listed in this Bill of Rights would be taken uh, uh, not to exist. That is, he said that the federal government can only do what we've authorized to do. And another point that we've lost is that in, in Federalist Paper 45, I think uh, uh, every American should read Federalist per, uh, 45 because it was written by Madison. And he, and he said that and, and and as you said, the Federalist Papers were written trying to convince the citizens of New York to ratify the Constitution and and other people to ratify the Constitution. And uh, Madison said, the powers that we delegated to the federal government are few and well defined, and restricted mostly to external affairs. Those left with the people and the and the states are indefinite and numerous. If you turn that upside down you'd have what we had today. The powers of the federal government are indefinite and numerous, and the powers of the people and the states are limited.
people only have the freedoms that ended up being la laid out for them under the, the Bill of Rights, uh, sadly. But I mean, th there was a, a framework that served our nation extremely well for decades or yeah. over a century, laying down, setting a, a stage for both political liberty and, and economic liberty that's led to America's prosperity, right? You're, you're absolutely right. And, and if you look at the, to get an idea of, the, of how the federal government was limited, uh, you just look at the progress in, in federal spending. Mm -hmm. That is, today, the federal government spends somewhere between 27, 30% of the GDP, it, uh, and particularly if you count the kind of off-budget expenditures. Right. And from 1787 until the 1920s, the federal government was just 3% of the GDP, mm -hmm. except during uh, wartime. <clears throat> and those people who say we need to have the kind of federal government we have today, you have to ask the question, how in the world did we go from a poor country, mm -hmm. a poor, weak country in 1787 and to and become the mightiest country on the face of the earth by close to 1930 without the, all the federal uh, spending programs? Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, I think that that we can, we can attribute our richness to the fact that the federal government very limited uh, during that time. And keep in mind, state and local governments only spend, I think, a total of 9, 9%. So total, federal, total government spending in our country was roughly about 12% mm -hmm. for most of our history. Today, total, federal, uh, total government spending, federal, state, and local government, is close to 40%. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we certainly departed from our, our, our history. We're in the midst of a presidential election cycle where it seems like our, our, the contenders for power are all promising to do for the federal government to do even more. Yeah. And in fact, on the Democratic side, the, the main contenders are, are battling with each other to, to see who's going to have the title of being the most progressive and the, yeah. to, to expand government even the most. How did we get to a situation where Today, uh, our contest for election is a contest to see who can have the government spend more or mm -hmm. regulate more or control our lives more. Well, well, it, we, it, we didn't get here overnight. and mm -hmm. means that we won't get out overnight. But, but I think there's, a, there, there's a, a, a question that we must ask and that Americans um, uh, don't ask is that Congress does not have any resources of its very own. Moreover, these spending programs, they don't represent congressmen and state legislatures reaching in their own pockets to hand out the money. Moreover, there's no tooth fairy or Santa Claus to give them the money. So when you recognize that government has no resources of its very own, that forces you to recognize that the only way the Congress or state legislator can give one American citizen one dollar is to first, through intimidation threats, and coercion confiscate that dollar from some other American. And, and those who think I'm being too loose with the term intimidation, threats, and coercion, well, you had Monday to check me out on this. <laughs> and and you could, tax, you could, uh, or the day taxes were due. That's right. You could have written, you could have written a note to uh, the IRS saying, I'm going to pay for all the, the, uh, the constitutionally mandated functions of the federal government, but I'm not having my money to go to bail out big business, to go for welfare, to go for crop subsidies and all this mm -hmm. stuff. You would have seen all the intimidation, threats, and coercion that you want to see. And if you acted too ugly, uh, you would go to jail. 
Well, I mean, and that's such a great point because I mean, one of my pet peeves is when when people in, in uh, the media or public discourse refer to the government's money as like the public's money. Well, yeah. it's not the public's money; it's our money. That's they right. They had to take it from us first, and somehow, since it's now in the public sector, somehow we've lost our, our ability to say how it should be used. Yes, and and what it really boils down to is that Congress. It's a it's really a moral question. That is. Congress is forcibly using one American to serve the purposes of another American. And that is, and I think it's immoral to forcibly use one person to serve the purposes of somebody else. Matter of fact, that's a good working definition of slavery, is the forcible use of one person to serve the purposes of another. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't want any of the viewers to think, well, gee, this guy doesn't care about his fellow man in need. I think helping one's fellow man in need by reaching into your own pockets to do so is praiseworthy and laudable. Mm -hmm. Helping one's fellow man by reaching into somebody else's pockets to do so, I think is worthy of condemnation. And for the Christians among us, I think when God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not steal, uh, he did not mean thou shalt not steal unless you got a majority vote in Congress. <laughs> Excellent point. I think one of the things that's uh, particularly disturbing about today's uh, electoral contest is how the Democratic con uh, contestants are, are, in effect, competing to f for this title of being the most progressive, mm -hmm. because we, we normally would associate progress with uh, things getting better in our society, in our country, in our mm -hmm. society, and somehow at least in the modern discourse, we seem to equate government doing more stuff with somehow being a, a progress. And yeah, really well, that, was, that's, that stems from the progressive movement in the United States that went from uh, roughly 1880, 1890 until 1920 or so. Mm -hmm. And it was during the time of Woodrow Wilson and, uh, and, and Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Woodrow Wilson thought that the, const the Constitution of the United States was something that was outdated, mm -hmm. that it no longer applied. And he made every effort to try to get rid of the Constitution that he could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some of the most damaging institutions to our country were set up during this progressive era, and namely the Federal Reserve Bank and the income tax. That is two Jeez. devastating yeah. uh, programs. And, 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 and the Federal Reserve Bank had to, for me, and from the evidence I see, the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, through its, its uh, monetary policy, it, uh, enables Congress to steal from the citizens mm -hmm. by inflating the currency. Matter of fact, I've suggested to people that if they ever find themselves in court on trial for counterfeiting, they should just tell the judge that they were engaging in monetary policy. <laughs> And, and, the, and, and setting up the income tax gave, the, gave Congress a powerful uh, means to play favors with Americans through the uh, tax code. And, for, and most people don't know that the Supreme Court held the, uh, tax, the income tax unconstitutional on two occasions. Mm -hmm. And it took the 16th Amendment to the United States Constitution, right. which a lot of people question whether it was done right, uh, to... To, uh, to really uh, get the uh, court to uh, uphold the, uh, the income tax. 
if you could explain for us a little bit more, how is it that their income tax it allows uh, the government so much control to, to by, you know, I guess, adjusting what you're going to tax or what you're not going to tax and how it ends up being such a, 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 a instrument of, of control over what people are going to be able to do with their own money? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it does two things. It provides Congress with a powerful source of revenue uh, to uh, so as to be able to buy play favorites with different Americans to pay fa favorites through the tax code uh, to stimulate to let's say to to give people uh, write-offs for uh, for home mortgages so as to uh, to stimulate the uh, the the real estate business and and if you look at the income tax the founders of our nation feared an income tax mm -hmm. they feared a direct tax and indeed in the Constitution, it says that there can't be a, a direct tax. And so it took the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, to amend the Constitution, to enable a direct tax. The founders said, well, look, uh, we, we, don't th we think that a, tax, a direct tax is the way to attack individual liberty and, attack and individual freedom. And so our country from 1787 until 1916, uh, when we had until the 16th Amendment, uh, we managed okay from uh, you know tariffs, uh, sales tax, mm -hmm. and we, and and the reason why we managed okay from this a tariff and a sales tax, excise tax was because government spending was so small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but when when government spending gets huge, you're going to have to need a huge source of income, and income tax is the uh, is a good way to get a huge source of revenue for the government. And then. I guess a little after the progressive era, we ended up with uh, the Social Security program coming in, and payroll taxes now are collect almost as much money mm -hmm. from Americans as the income, the individual income tax does itself. Right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and and I think the Social Security tax was a devastating tax. It occurred during the uh, the Rosa administration. Mm -hmm. It was established, but uh, the what the, what the Social Security tax uh, uh, when if you look at the at the legislative debate over the Social Security tax, they promised that the Social Security tax would never be above three percent, <laughs> and so, and they said that, that that's the maximum. You can just look at the Social Security pamphlet that was printed in 1936, <laughs> and and this is how politicians do: they start out with something small to lure people in, so the people will not resist it much, mm -hmm. and then once they have them. Then they just uh, they just run uh, go go uh, roughshod with it because uh, I think they made similar similar promises about the income tax uh, oh, when yeah. it was first being introduced that only like a handful of rich Americans would ever. I pay think it was it one or two percent. Uh, it, it would be at very low rates, but yeah. later rates ended up getting as high as ninety four percent, which uh -huh. basically is almost government confiscation yeah. of, of our income, right? That's right. And and if you look at something uh, more recently, the what is it? The alternative. Um, Income tax, because mm -hmm. they want to be able to be able to get money from the rich people who are putting their money in in um, uh, um, no tax securities and things like this. Right. And now a huge percentage of taxpayers are paying the alter, alternative minimum uh, income tax. Well, so we've certainly seen this. Uh, I guess a watershed shift in how Americans back from our the time of our founding and throughout much of the uh, our history 
looked upon themselves and, and looked to government mm -hmm. only to sort of lay the ground rules and, and do the absolutely necessary things, which is mm -hmm. a situation where we now turn to government. Or look, too many Americans seem to actually look to government first and foremost mm -hmm. to, to assist them. You know, in, I guess that's a part of what mm -hmm. we're seeing in, in our electoral contest, why, we, why politicians are, yeah. are trying to run it by, by saying, like, well, we're promising even more goodies from yeah. government. Is it possible that, that we can scale back the size of government if, if Americans don't, aren't willing to take on some more personal responsibility for themselves and not see, look to uh, turn to government? Well, I think that leads to one of the, the, one of the points I frequently make. I don't blame politicians. Mm -hmm. That is, politicians are doing precisely what the American people elect them to office do. And what do American people elect them to office do? They elect them to office to to, uh, on the promise that the politician will create a favor for them that will be done, denied another American, or, or and or I should say, they will use the power of their office to take what belongs to one American and bring it back to them. That is what we've come, we've become, I believe, a nation of thieves in that sense. Uh, that is, we're li trying to live at the expense of other people. And, 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 and any politician that would resist that he would get run out of town. He would not get elected to office. I mean, for, suppose I were to run for the for the U.S. Senate from the state of Alabama, mm -hmm. and I go back and forth across the state, and I say, my fellow citizens, <clears throat> I've read the United States Constitution. If you elect me to office, don't expect for me to bring back highway construction funds, aid to higher education, prescription drugs for seniors, and. <clears throat> and all these other programs, do you think the people of, I would get elected to the Senate from Alabama? I would hope so. <laughs> I, you'd have my vote, but. <laughs> I would it, not. It, it, it would be a tough call. I would not. And, and, and the tragedy of it, the true tragedy of it, is that the people of Alabama would be doing the absolute right thing by not electing me to the Senate. The reason why is that if I don't bring back billions of dollars for the people of Alabama, Alabama, it doesn't mean that Alabamans will pay a lower federal income tax. Mm -hmm. All that it means is that Georgia will get it instead. And so once legalized theft begins, it pays for everybody to participate in it. And those who don't participate in it uh, will wind up holding the brown end of the stick. And if you have a rural background, you know what the brand of the state is like. <clears throat> and so you, you, have, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but I, I think it would be good to expound on, or expand on this a little bit, the, the idea that um, when government grants favors to corporations, it's really a very different thing than if we had a, like a, a true market economy where all, all businesses would be treated equally. And so therefore, even if you hear some members of business or representatives mm -hmm. of business getting up and, and asking uh, Congress for some uh, tax break or, mm -hmm. or something, they're not necessarily proponents of, of limited government in real markets, right? No, no they're, they're, they're asking for favors. Mm -hmm. and, and in one sense, look, if you, if a, it, it takes a lot of moral courage uh, for a, 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 let's say, a CEO or a, or a businessman to say, well, look, I'm not going to take any of these favors. I'm not going to take any handouts. Well, what that means is that that puts him at a competitive advantage 
with other businesses that are at a competitive disadvantage mm -hmm. with uh, other businesses that are taking the handouts. So, so when he goes to his stockholders, I mean, I don't know how impressed the stockholder is going to be is when he says, I did not make the return that, that XYZ Corporation made because I'm going to be moral. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to sell with stockholders. So yeah. I don't think that, that you should ask anybody, a politician or, or a CEO, to uh, do what he considers to be political or economic suicide. That's the difficulty. Now, some people would say that before we had government uh, being so large that you know, what we had, what we observed in markets uh, itself was somehow unjust, that we had like, a few rich people or rich uh, businesses that were uh, running, that were controlling the economy and, and that they had a lot of uh, economic power and, and that many of the progressives sort of saw the rise of government as a way to sort of try to tame the, the power of, of big business and, and bring it to heel and, and make uh, make the economies maybe serve uh, people's the average person's interest mm -hmm. better. Did I think have I think that's nonsense. Under? Okay. I think that's not. I mean, let me take a person like Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. He became very very rich himself, but he did not benefit from n nowhere nearly as much as the common man who was able to have a car. A, a car that he could afford. If you look at uh, uh, people who invented the, the vacuum cleaner, you know, rich people have always had people to beat out their rugs, but the vacuum cleaner spared the common man the, that kind of drudgery. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, you take like uh, uh, somebody who invi invited, uh, who invented um, uh, um, vaccines or or antibiotics. They might have become rich, but look how rich we've become. Mm -hmm. Because, because we have antibiotics. I mean, the life expectancy has almost doubled since 1900 in our country, showing that we've benefited immensely. And so we should not allow people to get away with beating up on, on, on the rich, people who have made, who, who have served their fellow man. Matter of fact, that's one test of how you served your fellow man. That is, that is, Bill Gates, he did not come around with a gun and say, give me your $400. What he did, he built a, a, a window system that so pleased his fellow man that the mm -hmm. fellow man voluntarily plumped down two, three, four hundred $400 to buy the uh, uh, Windows program that made him very rich. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we have to do, one, and, we, and one of the things that the, that the Johnson Center and other free market uh, think tanks are doing, we have, the only way we can solve our problem is to somehow sell our fellow, man, our fellow man on the moral superiority of personal liberty and his, and his main ingredient, limited government. That mm -hmm. is, we have to convince our fellow man that f uh, freedom and liberty is the moral state of, is the, is the preferable state of affairs. We can't, we, we can't, we can't get politicians to do that. <laughs> we have to get our fellow man uh, uh, to, to uh, believe in the moral superiority of personal liberty. And I guess if they start voting for uh, people who believe in these principles, then they maybe we might start to see some change as well. Maybe so, yeah, maybe so. Now, just one last thing I wanted to try and touch on here, because the, another of the elements of, of a big government that we've pointed, that, uh, 
advocates point to is the fact that it, it does provide uh, welfare assistance to the poor in America. And, but does somehow suggest that there would be no help for the uh, for the, the poor downtrodden in our society if there if it wasn't for the government, right? That's not never really been true. Well, that's nonsense. States. I mean, if you ask questions, you know, people say, "Well, you just have to have food stamps, or else poor people are going to die." Well, you have to ask questions. Well, when when the poor Irish were fleeing the potato famine, arriving on our shores in eight during the eighteen forties, uh, was their food stamp program? How in the world did they make it? I mean, I always ask the question, when people say we need this program or that program, I always ask, what did we do before it? Because mm -hmm. most of these programs are, are, are relatively recent. I mean, people say, oh, we need housing and urban development. Well, how did would the world, you know, housing and urban development came in the, in the 1950s, and, and, and we Americans built massive <laughs> cities, you know. <laughs> And, and matter of people, fact, the cities were better before the HUD than after yeah. the HUD, you know. People weren't exactly living under trees in, in our cities. We actually did actually have urban cities That's right. before yeah. HUD came along, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and if anything, the federal programs, the bulldozing neighborhoods certainly didn't end up helping a, a lot of these neighborhoods That's that we're right. supposed to be trying to redevelop, right? And, and I've often said, so far as welfare, welfare is a devastating program. I mean, mm -hmm. it... it uh, it's, it saps people's drive. And I've often said, and maybe it's unkind of me to say this, is that the welfare system has done to black Americans what slavery could not have done, the harshest Jim Crow, and racism could not have done, namely destroy the black family. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is, at one time in our country, and, and during pretty bad times for blacks in the 1920s, 1910s, 85% of black kids live in two-parent families. Today, it's around 30%. So, so welfare has been a devastating effect on black America, and it's increasingly become a devastating effect on white Americans as well. Well, Walter, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time, so we have to wrap this up here. But it's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure, and I think an honor to have you on this show. You've been such a, a principal defender of, of limited government mm -hmm. and freedom over the years. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.